Let's pray. Gracious Father, we praise you that you are not a distant and a silent God, but that you have spoken to us. You've spoken to us by your creation. You've spoken to us by your word. And you've spoken in your Son, who you sent to be born into a dark world, light into darkness to bring life and salvation to us who were dead in our sins. And Father, as we hear from your word this morning, we acknowledge that we are in desperate need to see Christ. We are in desperate need to hear your life-giving words. So Father, by your Holy Spirit, may your preached word be an effectual means this morning of convincing and converting lost sinners. May your word build us up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. And help us as your people to attend to your word with diligence, preparation, and prayer to receive your word with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts. May your word take up residence within us and transform us in our thoughts, our actions, and our affections as we practice your word in our lives. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We've all experienced waiting and longing and expectation in our lives. We've waited for birthdays. We've waited for Christmas morning to come. We've waited to be old enough to drive, to graduate from high school, to graduate from college, for that right person to come into our lives, for that right job to finally come into our lives, or for retirement. When I was young, around Christmas time, my family would always go on a Christmas road trip. We would travel all over the United States, and I loved taking road trips when I was a kid. And I would always get so excited before the trip that the night before, I could not sleep. I could not fall asleep. And that's still the case. When I am getting ready to go on a vacation or a road trip, I get so excited. I'm so wrapped up in all of the fun that's about to be had. I'm waiting with so much expectation that I, I just literally cannot sleep the night before a trip. Waiting is a really hard thing to do. And sometimes the things that we wait for in this life are very trivial. The things like the people who were waiting for the new Spider-Man movie to come out recently. But sometimes our longings are very deep. Sometimes they're so deep within us that they seem to fill our whole body and heart with weight and persistent aching. The reality is that longing is often born out of pain. Those people that have chronic illness and chronic pain, they long for bodies that do not ache. Those who suffer oppression long for deliverance and for peace. And I think we could all add our own longings, our own achings and waitings to that list. Longing is born out of pain. But in our passage this morning, we see God's answer to our longing and to our expectations and our waiting. We see different characters, Simeon, Anna, and other people in the temple, people who are waiting and longing for the Lord to come. God's people in Israel had been suffering under oppression from the Romans and from the Greeks, and they were longing for the Messiah to come. And sometimes their longings were misplaced. 
But still we see that there were people who truly longed for the coming of the Messiah. But the longing didn't just begin with the Roman occupation or the Greeks or the Babylonians. The longing of God's people goes back beyond David, goes back beyond the exile in Egypt and slavery there. It goes back beyond Abraham. The longings of God's people goes all the way back to Genesis 3. The longing that we have for a serpent-crushing Savior who would come, who would come in the midst of our fall and our sin to bring redemption. The history of God's people from the fall all the way onward is a history of longing, waiting, and anticipation. And it's into this longing and this anticipation that Jesus Christ was born. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time, the coming of our Savior. The title for our message today comes from one of my favorite Advent and Christmas hymns by Charles Wesley, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And our title is from the last line of the first verse, Joy of Every Longing Heart. So in light of the longing of God's people, both at the time of Jesus' birth and the longing of us today, the main text or main point of our text this morning is this. Let us find joy for our longing hearts in Christ, the Savior. Let us find joy for our longing hearts in Christ, the Savior. And we're going to see four aspects of Christ as our Savior in our passage today. That Christ is the law-fulfilling Savior, the nation's illuminating Savior, the heart-revealing Savior, and the longing-fulfilling Savior. And I think this is so appropriate for us to do in this season, around Christmas, and in every season. When there's so much on our minds, so much that we've been thinking about, so much that we've been longing for, for us in this season to slow down and take a long, hard look at Jesus Christ, to consider him. So let's consider Jesus together this morning. I want you to look with me now to our text in Luke chapter 2. Look with me to verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So we see right away that Jesus was called Jesus because his name means the Lord is salvation. As we learn in Matthew 1, 21, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So you see that Christ is the Savior. But what's great here in Luke 2 is that we don't just learn that Jesus is the Savior. We also learn about how Jesus is the Savior and how he accomplishes salvation for us as his people. I want you to look at verses 21 through 27, just this big chunk of verses here. And I want us all to notice how many times the law is mentioned in these verses. It's over and over and over again. In verse 21, Jesus was circumcised after eight days. This is in obedience to Genesis 17, 12. Then in verse 22, we see their purification according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, 
we learn the reason for Jesus being presented at the temple. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. This is a quotation from Exodus 13, which we read earlier. In verse 24, they offered a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. This is a sacrifice commanded in Leviticus 12, verse 8. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And then verse 27 also mentions the parents bringing Jesus to the temple to do for him according to the custom of the law. So why does Luke emphasize over and over again here the law of the Lord? Why does he tell us that all of these things happened according to the law, as it is written in the law? What Luke is doing is showing us that Jesus, even from his birth, even as an infant, is our Savior because he is the law fulfiller. Jesus is our Savior because he is the law fulfiller because he submitted to and obeyed the law even from his birth. Jesus' saving work for us didn't just begin at the cross. Jesus was our savior even from his birth. And this is very important for us because for our salvation, we need more than just to have our slate wiped clean. We need more than just to be neutral in God's sight. We need to be righteous in God's sight to be saved. But because we are sinners, because of the fall, we can never attain to that righteousness by our own efforts. We can't attain to a righteousness that would satisfy God's justice just by our own works and what we can do. We have been sinners from our birth, and so we need a Savior who has been righteous from his birth. I love how Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says this, which was also read earlier. Paul wrote, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We who were condemned under the law, need an under the law savior. We need a savior to bear our law-breaking guilt in his death and to give us his law-keeping righteousness so that we can be redeemed and so that we can be adopted by God as his sons. Now, how often do we meditate on this aspect of the incarnation of Christ at Christmas? How often do we think and when Christ was coming, he was coming as our law-obeying Savior and law-fulfilling Savior. That Jesus Christ, the one who didn't need a new heart, came and was circumcised. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, the one who never needed redemption, came to the temple by his parents as the firstborn son, and the redemption price was paid for him as we read about in Exodus 13. The one that the law pointed to was Jesus, the one who would come and fulfill that very law in our place so that we could be counted as righteous before God. That is one of the joys of Christmas. That is part of what we should celebrate. Many of us 
have experienced hunger and thirst, probably to different degrees. Hunger and thirst are good things. They're not comfortable things when you feel them, but they're good things because they remind you that one of your basic needs for life needs to get met. We need water to survive. We need food to survive. And that growling stomach that some of you are probably feeling right now as you're looking forward to a delicious lunch right now, it reminds us we need food. When we experience a longing for God, part of why we experience that longing is because God alone in Christ meets our most basic need. It's a longing that reminds us we need Christ more than we need food and water. We long for him because we need him to meet our most basic need, to redeem us so that we can be counted as righteous before God and reconciled to him. So Christ is the law-fulfilling Savior, but second, he is the nation's illuminating Savior. In verse 25, we're introduced to a man who's named Simeon. If you look with me there, we see that he's described as being a righteous man, he's devout, and that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, the consolation or the comfort of God's people. This is actually a reference to the Messiah. When he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, he's waiting for the Christ to come. Now, From what we see about Simeon, he's not a priest, he's not a religious leader, He's just an ordinary man who's filled with the Holy Spirit. And on that day, the Holy Spirit leads him into the temple and he has a divine appointment. He walks into the temple and he sees the baby Jesus. He walks up. He holds him in his arms. He looks down at him. He sees Jesus and he worships the Lord. He cries out in praise in this song that we have here. It's the fourth song, actually, that we have recorded in the book of Luke, just in these first two chapters. Now hear what Simeon cries out in praise. It says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory for your people, Israel. I want us to notice that in verse 30, when Simeon sees Jesus, it says that he sees God's salvation. Jesus and salvation are so interconnected and intertwined that to see Jesus, even as an infant, was to see salvation itself. How often do we long for salvation and long for the good gifts of the gospel without longing for Jesus himself, the great gift of the gospel himself? Jesus is the best thing that we receive in the gospel. But also look at how this salvation then is described in verses 31 and 32. In verse 31, we see that it is for all people. And then in verse 32, we're told what all people means. It means a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Now for the Gentiles, those who 
were apart from the people of God, who lived in darkness, who were strangers to God's covenants and God's special revelation. To them, Jesus brought light. He brought light into darkness. And then for Israel, Jesus brought what the prophet Isaiah looked forward to. Isaiah looked forward to the glorification and beautification of God's people in a way that would draw the nations to the Lord. So the baby that Simeon was holding in his hands was the Savior. He was the Savior of all people, Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He was the one who would come and save the nations, that people could be reconciled to God. Now I want us to consider for a moment this morning how we participate in this plan and purpose of God to bring light to the nations. I don't think that we all need to become overseas missionaries, although some of us may and some of us should. But I do believe that all of God's people should participate in the mission that God has given to his people, the church. And we can do that through prayer, through giving, through personal evangelism. We shouldn't overlook the city of Janesville and the darkness that lies here and the people that need to hear the gospel, even in this city in which you live. But as we consider the work of evangelism and missions, perhaps you feel intimidated. Perhaps you feel discouraged. The prospect of sharing the gospel with our friends, with our family, with our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, it can be a frightening thing to consider, a frightening prospect for us. We're reminded of our own inadequacies. We're reminded of our own guilt. We're reminded of all the ways we feel ill-equipped to go and proclaim this message to people. We're also reminded of the darkness of the world in which we live, a darkness that can sometimes feel overwhelming for us. We can look out in the world and we can be discouraged by the hardness of hearts that we see. And sometimes this can paralyze us, it can keep us from engaging in the mission that God has given to his people. But even as we consider the challenges that lie within us and the challenges that lie outside of us, I want us for just a moment to take our eyes off of ourselves, our eyes off of this world, and instead to put our eyes on Jesus. We ultimately need to consider him. That child that Simeon was holding in his hands was the one who would save the nations. He's the one who will accomplish all of his purposes. He's the one who will gather his people. He is the one who promised to be with us even to the end of the age. Let's consider Jesus and let's be encouraged to go and fulfill the mission that God has given to us because Jesus is capable of doing even what we are incapable of doing ourselves. We have a nation's illuminating and nation's saving savior and it's him that we proclaim. But as we consider, again, this work of missions and evangelism, one other thing that should be very obvious to us is that not all people rejoice in Jesus. We all know that, I think, even experientially. We have friends, probably, and, and family members that have rejected Christ. 
In my four years of working on staff with InterVarsity, doing college ministry, I saw a wide range of reactions to the gospel when I would go and do evangelism on campus. I had some students who responded with joy. Praise the Lord, there were students that received the gospel, that put their faith in Jesus Christ. But more often than not, there were students who treated the sharing of the gospel with them more like an unwanted spam email that they just kind of look at and say, ugh, this is kind of annoying and remove it, delete it. They just kind of didn't want to hear it. And then I saw people all the way on the other end of the spectrum, people who responded with anger, either anger at me and sometimes anger at God. And even while Jesus is the great savior of the nations, not all people rejoice in Christ. And this is because Christ is not only the nation's illuminating savior, he is also the heart-revealing savior. That's our third point this morning, that Christ is the heart-revealing savior. So I want you to look with me to verse, uh, verses 33 through 35. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon had just declared that Jesus was going to be the savior of all peoples. It's such joyful news, right? If we ended there, we'd end on this great high note, this encouraging note in this passage. But that's not where Simeon leaves us and not where Luke leaves us. Simeon tells Mary that Jesus was going to be opposed, that he was going to bring about the fall and rising of many in Israel. But notice that it's not like something strange is happening when Jesus was opposed. It actually says in the text that Jesus was appointed for that very purpose. Jesus was appointed for the purpose of the fall and rising of many in Israel, for being opposed, for revealing the thoughts of many hearts. There are certain things that seem to be inherently divisive. We all know what topics to avoid at our own particular family gatherings over Christmas and other holidays. But one thing that can be oddly divisive is sports. Now, at Livingstone Church, I limit myself to two sports illustrations a year, but this is not Livingstone Church, so I feel like I am free to use one of my two. So if I preach here again this year, I'll still limit myself to two at River Hills. But bear with me for just a moment. Lexi and I have an ornament on our Christmas tree that says, all I want for Christmas is the Packers to win the Super Bowl. Amen. <laughs> Diehard Packers fans long for another Super Bowl with almost this religious obsession. Don't we? <laughs> so imagine this year that the Packers finally win the Super Bowl. That they do it again, Aaron Rodgers gets his second ring. We're all celebrating. Imagine the celebration that would go on in Green Bay. The celebration that would go on in all of your homes. And all around the state of Wisconsin. Think of all the joy that that would bring us, right? 
Now, how do you think Bears fans would respond if the Packers won the Super Bowl? Packers fans and Bears fans are completely split on their allegiances. And there often seems to be a lot of animosity between Packers fans and Bear fans. And I don't envy how close you live to the Illinois border. I'm sure it's a lot harder here than up closer to Green Bay where it's nice and safe in Packer country. The last Packers-Bears game in Green Bay, 17 fans were ejected and nine were arrested. Both of those numbers were season highs for games at Lambeau Field. That always tends to happen when the Packers play against the Bears. Now, serious football fans in Wisconsin and in Illinois cannot remain neutral about their football allegiances. You cannot be both a Packer fan and a Bear fan, though I know people that have tried. You cannot remain neutral about the Packers and the Bears. You have to love one and hate the other. At least it's, it seems that way. But guess what? Jesus is more divisive than the Packers and the Bears. Although Jesus isn't divisive in the way that sinful people are divisive. So when I say Jesus is divisive, I'm not giving you license to just go and be a sinfully divisive person. That's not what I'm saying. But as much as some people may try, neutrality when it comes to Jesus is impossible. You cannot remain neutral about him. And Jesus didn't come to soften that divide. Jesus came to sharpen that divide. Ultimately, Jesus Christ is either your king or he is your enemy. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality with Jesus Christ. And as it says in verse 35, Jesus came to reveal the thoughts of many hearts. So we need to consider where are our hearts? Where are our hearts? And I love what J.C. Ryle says about this. And now what do we think of Christ? This is the question that ought to occupy our minds. What thoughts does he call forth in our hearts? This is the inquiry which ought to receive our attention. Are we for him or are we against him? Do we love him or do we neglect him? I love that it doesn't just say, do we love him or hate him? Do we love him or do we neglect him? Do we stumble at his doctrine? Or do we find it life from the dead? Let us never rest till these questions are satisfactorily answered. Let us never rest until we know that our hearts are for our Lord, that he is our friend and our king and not our enemy. Where are our hearts? But as we ask ourselves these questions, I want to ask one last question for us this morning. Is Jesus the longing of your heart? Not only is he not your enemy, but is Jesus the longing of your heart? Our last point this morning is that Christ is the longing, fulfilling Savior. At the end of our passage in verse, uh, verses 36 through 38, we meet another character, the prophetess Anna. She was an old widow from the tribe of Asher, which actually has some neat significance that I don't have time to get into this morning, so talk with me later, or do some research on your own, why it's neat that Anna is from Asher. But she's an old widow, and she spent years, almost all of her life, 
in the temple, worshiping God through fasting and through prayer. This is a picture of a woman who longed for God. She longed to be in his presence. She wouldn't go away from the temple. She wanted to worship her God. Now she arrives on the scene, probably as Simeon is uttering these words about Christ the Savior. And she does two things. First, she joins in on the worship. She gives thanks to God. She praises him. But then the second thing she does, which is very interesting, is that she begins to speak about Jesus to people. And not just any people. Look at who these people are in the text with me. She spoke specifically to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Apparently, even with all of the religious corruption in Jerusalem in that day, there was a number of people, a number of Israelites, who were waiting for the Messiah, who were longing for God's promises to come to pass. And now these people who had been waiting and waiting received the news that they had been waiting for. The Redeemer of Israel had come, and he was a baby, and he was in the temple. Go, see him. He is here, the one you have longed for. The desire of their longing hearts had come. And let's notice how similar this language at the end of verse 38 is to the language describing Simeon in verse 25. The common word here is waiting. The people that recognized Jesus for who he was and rejoiced at his coming were the people who were waiting. You may have noticed that I skipped over verse 29. Maybe you were a little frustrated at me because that verse is so good, but I just wanted to save it for last. Simeon had been waiting for the day that he would see the Christ, the promised Messiah. And when Simeon sees him, what does he say? It says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And the emphatic word here in this sentence in the Greek is now. If we're going to write one word in all caps in this sentence, it would be now. Lord, now, now at this moment, now I can die. I have seen all I need to see. I have seen your salvation. And at this very moment, I would be happy to die. Simeon saw, when he saw that little child, he saw all that he ever needed to see. And this is again a good time for us to check our own hearts. Do we long for Jesus like Simeon and Anna and those who were waiting for the redemption of Israel who were in the temple that day? Do we long for Jesus? And I think if we're honest, often the answer is no, or at least not as much as I should. Because of our sin, our hearts are like instruments that need to get recalibrated. Or if you're a musician, maybe I could go instruments that need to be retuned. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Ryan Reeves, he likes to say that our wanter is broken. I love it. I love how simple that is. Our wanter is broken. The thing inside us that desires things always seems to desire the wrong thing. One thing that's always a guarantee at Christmas time when I'm at the Hegley's house is that we are going to have an incredible feast. Last night we had Swedish meatballs and these cheesy potatoes and veggies and these wonderful desserts. Later today we're eating beef tenderloin. I'm very hungry and very excited about that. 
It's going to be great. I love food. I love good food. Now, what if I gave you right now a choice between a delicious Christmas feast on the one hand or a piece of poisoned candy on the other hand? What would you choose? It's pretty obvious. We would choose the feast. Now, what if I offered to you eternal pleasures in the presence of our God and the deceitfulness of sin? Sin that might taste good for a little bit, but it's going to kill you. It's going to destroy you. You want to know what's weird? We choose that poison candy all the time. How weird is that? I think it speaks so much to the corruption of sin in our hearts. Our wanter is broken. We want and like poisoned candy when a, when a feast is offered to us by our Lord. Hearts that are twisted by sin with broken wanters time and again choose the wrong thing. And this is why regeneration that new life-giving, being-born-again work of the Holy Spirit is so necessary for someone to come to faith in Christ. Someone can't hear the gospel and look at Christ and say, I want that. I desire him. I need that. Until something inside of that person has been radically changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. But even for us who are Christians... We need a constant retuning and recalibrating of our wanters. We need to learn to love Jesus and to long for him above all the other longings in our life. And part of the way the Spirit does that in us is through these reminders in his word. Part of how he does this is through work in our heart through prayer. So let it be a regular prayer of our hearts. Lord, help me want you more than I want sin. Help me long for Jesus more than I long for anything else in the world. Because we must know that Jesus and Jesus alone can meet our greatest needs and he can only fulfill our truest and best longings. But even for those of us who in this life do know Jesus, we're still waiting, aren't we? We're still waiting, longing, expecting, yearning. We long for Jesus' return. We long to be able to see Jesus face to face in the way that Simeon saw his Lord. We should long to see Jesus. When you see your sin, long for Jesus. When you see the fallenness of our world, long for Jesus. When you feel pain or you see pain, long for Jesus. When the good desires of your hearts are not given to you by the Lord, long for Jesus above those longings and above those desires. And may every other good longing in our life train our hearts to long for Jesus above all other longings, desire to be in the presence of our Lord and to see him face to face. Longing in this life, it's often born out of pain. But for the Christian, our longing finds its fullest and, and best joy and its fulfillment in the eternal pleasures of our Lord. 
Again, quoting J.C. Ryle, the second advent of Christ is yet to come. The complete redemption of this earth from sin and Satan and the curse is yet to take place. So let us declare plainly by our lives and conduct that for this second advent we look and long. May this be the cry of our longing hearts. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, joy of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have not given us all of the sinful desires of our hearts, that you've left those sinful desires often frustrated, and that instead you have given us the greatest gift who truly brings joy to our longing hearts. You've given us your very Son. We ask that you would work in us by your Spirit. Recalibrate our hearts Help us to long for Christ above all other longings. Help us to love him as we ought so that we might live for him in this life and that people may come to know you through him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.